0: Welcome to the words that change lives podcast, helping leaders, coaches, and small business owners to 10 times the impact of their message. Join us as we delve into the art of powerful language, enabling you to speak with unwavering honesty, communicate authentically, and create a lasting impression with every word. In this episode, We are going head-to-head and the topic for the head-to-head conversation is public speaking versus stand-up comedy. And I am going to be speaking to an awesome lady today. Her name is Louise Stevenson. She started her career in stand-up comedy in 1999, working alongside people like Jimmy Carr, Alan Carr, Rich Hall and Stephen K. Amos, among many others. So she's entertained international audiences with her Glaswegian wit. She's a really engaging speaker with a terrific storytelling style and has earned a reputation for entertaining, informing and inspiring large and small audiences. And she founded her business, Speakeasy Coaching, for people who want to be powerful and authentic speakers. And she uses techniques from the world of comedy to help others create engaging content and deliver it with confidence and style. And I really wanted to talk to Louise because we have similarities and differences in our experience and what it really takes to confidently stand in front of a crowd. Now, as you can hear there, Louise's experience comes from the world of stand-up comedy. She now helps people within the public speaking arena, as well as running comedy courses in Brighton. She's also got books that you can uh, purchase. The links are in the show notes. And her approach to delivering a message, holding a room, It's different to mine, but there are similarities too. And I really wanted to explore that in this episode, the head-to-head of public speaking versus stand-up comedy, to see where we can draw from the world of stand-up and the world of public speaking to really make an impact with our words. Hello, Louise, and welcome to the Words That Change Lives podcast. How are you today?
1: Yeah, I'm really good, Helen. I'm delighted to be on board today.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So as I've said, this podcast episode is a head-to-head, and today's head-to-head is public speaking versus stand-up comedy. And the first thing I'd like to know is the skills that you have and I guess the journey that you've been on that led you into the world of stand-up comedy.
1: Um, so I did my first stand-up gig in 1999 in Wellington, New Zealand, um, and I did um, I performed to in a dark and dingy room to around 20 Kiwi gulfs. Um uh, This was quite interesting because very very few of them had an exposure. To a glass accent so um it had its challenges um but i'd been on a stand-up comedy course um and i had did a beginner's comedy course so that that that, that skilled me up and gave me some confidence to be able to go on and do my first gig um and then after that i was asked to come back and um was booked and then went on to work professionally on the the New Zealand, the Australian and um the UK circuit.
0: Oh right. So a tough crowd then with uh in New Zealand not knowing, not understanding your accent.
1: Well, I think the majority got them, but certainly um a, a Glass region action, it does take some concentration. <laughs> It
0: does. And I guess, you know, that's part of this whole thing, isn't it? So you took a course. Yeah. And
1: what happened after that? So I just started picking up more gigs. I enjoyed the experience um, and I kept writing material. I kept on making the material sharper, testing it out at open mic nights um, in Wellington. So I worked in that new zealand circuit for maybe um seven months eight months before working in melbourne and working um further around in australia
0: okay so would you say it's something that you a combination of natural skill plus learning how to do this thing or is it something that you can just learn that anybody can learn
1: I think comedy can be taught. I think there's people who are funnier than others. You know, it's common sense, really, isn't it, some people? Um, And and there's also, there can also be countries or upbringings where humour is more a commodity than others. Um, And my own upbringing in Glasgow, it was hugely important, um, sense of humour, and banter was, you know, what we traded on so it, it was something that came very natural in my upbringing so I think there's definitely people who have uh, a propensity for it because they've always used it since you know being a child and their families have used it so it's it's around them and, and it's in their surroundings mm-hmm. and I would say there was people comedy a lot to do with confidence and I find that people who have come on... So I've run a comedy school now for 12 years and I've had people come on that that say, gosh, my friends were so surprised that I was coming on a comedy course. They actually blatantly said, you're not funny, which is very harsh. But I think with that, I think confidence in writing material, being able to perform it in a safe space and coming up your shell it's unlikely in a beginner's eight-week course that you wouldn't tap in to some form of humour um, by digging deep.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, part of this conversation is actually it's, it's that kind of versus, but it's also, you know, what's the same? And uh, in public speaking, I think for me, I got my confidence actually from standing on a stage and using humour to make me feel less nervous. And it's kind of a natural, it's a natural mechanism for a lot of people to make themselves feel less nervous by using humour to kind of disarm a crowd, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I love, Helen, that you use it in public speaking. You know, I find a lot of people don't, I find that, in, in, and that brings us right on to, you know, how is it similar and how what's the difference between stand-up and public speaking and, and formality, people think to be an effective public speaker, you have to be formal, you know, and and that by using humour in a talk that you'll lose any kind of professional gravitas, which is a complete nonsense, you know, so I love that you do use humour, it, it should be used, it's a brilliant tool for audience engagement And and people who don't bring that into their talks these days, I just think miss a trick.
0: Mm, So that's one thing which we'll come on to more in a moment of where we can draw from stand up comedy to help us with public speaking. But before that, I kind of just want to get your view on what makes a really good stand up comic in your view, in your experience of doing it yourself, of working the circuit, of seeing other people out there and helping so many people through that process. In your view, what makes a really good stand-up comic?
1: I think people underestimate the hard graft that goes mm. into being a comedian. And and often I'll get people sometimes come on the course who will say, should I quit my job just now? Which makes me just try and dig deep and respond positively. Most comedians take seven to ten years on working hard on the circuit, touring around countries, staying in cheap hotels, uh, writing material, editing it, and working for little to no money before they make it and stand up. There's very few exceptions to the rule. So it is a process. So I think the the main thing of success and stand up is hard graft know that it's mm. going to be hard graft and know that, uh, you know, there's prima donnas, don't go far in stand-up mm. comedy. You really have to dig deep and you have to do your time. And the other thing is, is I, I, I know comedians personally, you know, who have TV shows and, and I know comedians who work in the circuit who one will have better material than the other, but the other will possess more confidence and more stage mm-hmm. presence. And, and mm. ultimately they will do better because of that confidence and because of that stage presence. Mm. So so those things are just essential, but confidence comes from performing, from experience, from doing it time after time, Um, you know, from your mindset changing and thinking, actually, I do quite well. Actually, I've done well five out of 10 times at the beginning. Oh, I'd do well now six out of ten times, at right up to eight and nine. that's when you know you're becoming, you know, good enough to be semi-professional or a professional comic. Mm.
0: Okay, so let's break that down. So what I'm hearing there is first off, hard graft. Now, you know, you, you could say that with 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 anything, but in particular with this type of profession. But what also if we think about what those skills are, that's actually its tenacity. Mm-hmm and it's the ability to take rejection yeah it's the ability to bounce back from knockbacks and keep going because you believe so much in what you want to do and ha- and the effect you want to have on people exactly right? exactly so we we can we can draw that in into the public speaking realm, I guess not in terms of with public speaking, there is a certain, there is an amount of graft involved because I think a lot of people think, oh, I wanna be a public speaker. I just wanna go and land a 10K gig in a corporate environment. That's what I wanna do. And I wanna add an income stream to my business. But these things in the beginning, they don't just fall in your lap, right? It involves having a strategy, having clarity, doing the graft and being okay with the nose, right? Because you've got experience on, on both sides there. Um, and there, there's a real similarity there, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, bounce back is crucial, uh, especially in stand-up. And, and I'll often, because I, you know, once people worked in the beginners course and worked in the comedy circuit, there's the advanced workshops in there. They'll come in and go, oh, last night this happened. And, and it's a bit finding a separation. So rather than saying, I was crap, you know, being able to say, do you know what worked well? Do you know what really did not drop? I wonder if I'd fine-tuned that joke differently. I wonder if my confidence wasn't as good because the woman in the front was talking really loudly. You know, look at it, be analytical um, about your performance and don't just... If you jump in to attack yourself every single time things don't work out, then stand-up or public speaking just isn't for you. You won't have a nice time.
0: Yeah, it is that ability to not only be okay with the feedback and the knockback, and we'll go into to bombing in a minute because that's like a, an important thing to talk about, but it's the ability to reflect and review So, not only to kind of like visualize the outcome you want, but also to reflect and review afterwards to be like, okay, that bit went really well. That bit didn't go so well. I can tweak that for next time. And again, massive similarities between the two there. Sure. I also want to go back to what you said about confidence and presence.
1: Yeah.
0: Because a lot of the time in public speaking, when I'm teaching and coaching and training people in public speaking, It's all about what I say and the words I'm using and how I'm actually articulating them. Now, that, of course, is a big part of it. But having that belief in who you are and what you do and thinking about how you're taking up space also does have an impact. And you talked about presence. And did you say that the comedians that
1: have that do better um, they do as performers, you know, there's a lot of comedians that decided to be comedy writers and they might write for Mock the Week or um, for, for one of the panel shows. Uh, but as a performer, um, I've seen people with more confidence and less writing, comedy writing ability thrive and do much better on this comedy circuit. Hmm.
0: And do you think that's just an innate thing? Or it's again something that just can come.
1: You know, I would say performance um, and comedy writing, both of them, I think, get better the more you do it. I think anything that you shine a light on, you know, if I wanted to be a great guitarist, I would start. I would get some coaching, and I would start putting that time aside for discipline to spend three hours a week to work on it. So it it's been able to shine a light on it and put again the graph put the time in so do some people have it automatically yeah i mean we all have different levels of confidence that can be from our upbringing that can be from our environment you know there's there's a huge amount of different factors that contribute to our confidence levels i think you can learn to be more confident for sure um and, and i've seen many clients do so by just getting a few notches in their belt and by coming at their comfort zones and seeing a little shift in their mindset and and changes and how people respond to them as well, I think is a huge change, um, a huge shift in what you see in confidence.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. You know, part of my personal story is that I used to do all the standing up and training the leaders and then I lost my confidence. I ran away from that career and I hid and I started a business that involved doing nothing of that. And I vowed that I would never stand up in front of a room full of people again. And the first time I did was the TEDx talk to 1,500 people at the dome. Now, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that sort of went in, but I was feeling incredibly unconfident before that. But after that, there was no stopping me. Because I realised I could do it. And what I also realised is that most people are rooting for you. Yeah. Now, a stand-up comedy audience might be a bit different because you've got the hecklers and you've got the people that are you know, shouting into the audience, which is more challenging. But with a public speaking audience, most people, they're rooting for you. They, they want you to do well
1: yeah but but you'd be surprised a lot of the same audience are the same and uh you know a stand-up gig most people in the audience are rooting for the comedians Mm -hmm. to do well there's there's a few comedy clubs there's there's one in a notorious one in london that um encourages audience to be very focal and and i'd say quite hostile towards a comedian um I don't endorse that. It's it's no what comedian, you know. It's good to be able to think on your feet, for sure. It's good to be able to, audience work is important, uh, whether you're a public speaker or a stand-up comedian. It's important to be able to react to situations and think on your feet, for sure. But being hostile to someone that's there to share a message or to make you laugh you know I it's not my thing I, I just think it's unnecessary
0: mm. yeah I guess there's certain comedians that invite that more than others for sure yeah and that's part of their skill like um I can't remember his
1: name Jimmy Carr does it a lot I think Jimmy Carr yes yes Jimmy Carr. so Jimmy Jimmy very much enjoys that you know I've been I've been performing in gigs with um, Jimmy in London and I've and been on before them, or after them. and after him And you've just seen a couple with the male heckler said so. And the girlfriend is just crawling under the table um as Jimmy completely annihilates him. So, uh, I mean, he just loves it. And and it's, uh, you know, it can be great fun to watch. It's just not my style. It, you know, everybody has their... Uh, their own thing and, and it is hugely funny but it, it it's not what I enjoy
0: let's let's draw that into public speaking because obviously we're not heckling isn't part of it but interaction and feedback and connection with the audience when you are obviously delivering stand-up comedy but also when you're delivering a talk apart from I will say the caveat of TED because TED is more of a one-way dialogue, you can have audience interaction, but I'm talking about the keynotes. I'm talking about signature talks that are around 45 minutes long, the the longer uh, types of talk where interaction and audience connection is vital, right? Otherwise it's flat as a pancake and engagement can really go down.
1: For sure. And it doesn't always have to be actual interaction it can it can be perceived interaction you know good public speaking should be conversational it should feel like a conversation um whether that is or not and there's things you can put in like rhetorical questions you know asking the audience by a show of hands how many of you this morning and you know there's ways to get your audience involved um, and touch points throughout your talk, you know, I when I'm coaching people one on one, and they're going, "Is there? Like, oh, I'm going to do a TED Talk, or I'm going to do something." And and it's it's having touch points where you can feel connected to your audience, mm-hmm. and audience engagement is just bigger and more important than ever before because you know how quickly people will be checking their phones. Mm-hmm. You know, with the, the the age of social media, your audience engagement is key. You need mm-hmm. to have your audience engaged.
0: Yeah, 100%. I'm just thinking of a few things there versus somebody described it to me like doing a dance. And you go out onto the stage and you hold out your hand. And it's within the first few seconds where the audience want to take your hand and engage, and go on that dance with you, or whether they're just going to disconnect and not really be engaged. And so the beginning of that talk uh, is absolutely key in grabbing their attention and going on that dance with them. And yeah, the other thing I was thinking about was was the use of of humour in that connection, um, and how that actually is a really, really great way of bringing those walls down, bringing that fourth wall down, that invisible fourth wall and really making the audience connect with you. And it doesn't have to be forced either, right?
1: No, exactly. And and people think, oh, should I cram in a joke? When, when we're talking about humour, we're not talking about a joke. Uh, we're talking about anecdotes. We're talking about a metaphor. We're talking about a quote that might be funny. Uh, You know, there's a a million ways to add humour in a natural way um, to engage your audience. And it's such a a key way. I mean, you asked me, Helen, I think you asked me recently, do I prefer to watch stand-up comedy or public speaking talks? And it would have to be, I thought about it and I thought, well, actually it would have to be stand-up comedy and it's because of the entertainment value. And mm. there's there's no reason why talks can't be entertaining, but I, it, it saddens me how many people that are brilliant public speakers just think professional means not being authentic. Professional means being formal. Professional means no sense of humour. Park your sense of humour at the door. Uh, You know, it's it's mad. I I, I mean, you just build such an engagement with your audience. Another thing is people like to do business with people they like. If you make someone laugh, they'll remember you. They'll want to do business with you. It breaks down that wall. It's just such a great engagement tool.
0: Yeah, so what we can draw from there is actually we can really take from public um, stand-up comedy the humor, the use of humor to bring that into our talks to to lighten them up and still deliver an important message. You know, I, I coach quite a few people, as I know you do, in the corporate world around these types of things. Now, I coach people that run their own business, and I coach leaders, and I will, f- you know, I find all the time there's more armor. With people within organisations in doing talks and presentations and things, because they feel they have to be serious. Uh, so maybe it could be, you know, delivering uh, something at a town hall where there's loads of people, and it's all about the message and the seriousness of the message. Whereas if you included humour in the way that you've described there, in anecdotes or stories, other people's stories. Whatever it might be, it really just adds another layer of not only lightness, but also depth because you're showing your personality and you're connecting with all of those people that you're speaking to. And the same with TED. Using humor and, and TED Talks is also really, really great because there is less feedback, as in less audience participation, creating that that fun element, even if... And of course, certain topics, of course, there's going to be certain topics that don't allow for that more than others. But it's a fantastic tool. So I think that's a really real good golden nugget from this episode is that we can really bring more humour into our talks.
1: And I think, Helen, that you'd be surprised at the things. I I mean, I've had clients that work for Sussex Suicide Prevention. I've had clients who have been talking about their, their, their experience with cancer. I've had clients that work in IT and I've been in some group programs and corporate when I've said to them, okay, um, we can all bring a humour in it, everything, you know, everything, there's humour everywhere. And, and one of the senior leaders piped up, I, I work in the IT team, find humour with that. Now, what I did was a simple Google search, um, 10 things you didn't know about someone who works in IT. And it came back that 80% of people who work in IT don't tell their family and friends from fear of being asked to help. Now, uh, you know, <laughs> that's hilarious. It's just unbelievable and so funny. And and so he started his next presentation with that. And he sent me a message through LinkedIn. And he said, oh, my God, I just can't believe how well it went done. There is humour in the most serious conversations and the yes. most serious subjects. When we're, indeed, when we're talking about such serious things, we need to offset it. Mm. Especially, you know, when we're coaching some some content, you'll know yourself, Helen. It's very dry. Sometimes mm. I'm working with people in the tech industry, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, my content is so dry." So you really have to find ways to add the humour and find a natural way, an anecdote or, you know, a bit of video, just something to kind of lighten uh, the content.
0: Totally agree. Now, I want to talk about something that might make people shy away from public speaking and shy away from stand-up comedy. Because, you know, as as I'm, I'm sure you know, I speak to a lot of people that say, oh, my God, it's something I really want to do. But I'm scared. I'm scared of being uh, ridiculed, exposed. I'm scared of mucking it up, of doing something wrong. I'm scared of bombing. And I think on both sides of the coin here, there's, there is a risk, right? There is a risk that something can go wrong, that you can bomb. But it's going to be slightly different. So what I'd love to do is explore bombing in stand-up, first of all, because I'm sure you've got, you know, obviously there's lots of experience from the people that you've helped and that it's something that is inevitable. So how do we navigate that?
1: Um, Do you mean plenty of experience, Helen, because I've bombed so many times myself? (laughs) No! (laughs) Just kidding. Um, So this is another thing where you need to find the bounce back. So I had an experience, and sometimes there's no rhyme and reason, I did a gig in Melbourne, and... It was quite a nice venue and um, a wine bar and I had a really great gig and um, I had a wee bit of a standing ovation at the end which was fabulous, I was delighted with myself. The next night I had a gig in a rougher end of town. Now It was quite spitting sawdust um, uh, a kind of area, a bit bronxy um if I'm honest uh, but I went along there and I had the exact same material from the night before and I could get nothing absolutely mm. nothing out of these people and for me uh, and and this what I'm not saying this always happens but I loved it I found it hilarious I found it hugely hilarious that these people were like you, I have nothing, I'm getting nothing from you at all, you know. It just amused the hell out of me. Um, and so I started kind of making myself laugh, you know, by saying, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you've been such a pleasure. I can see you having such a good time and just having a bit of kind of, you know, amusing myself. And then I just went into the bathroom after and I actually chuckled to myself in the mirror for a good five minutes before I could come out the toilet. So for me, that dying on your bum so hugely was quite. It was it was a fine experience. Now every comedian on stage that night didn't do well, so obviously that's going to help me feel better. Had I been the only person who didn't have a good time with the audience in front of them, it might have been a slightly different case. But yeah, I think I I enjoyed the experience and I think that was my worst dying on my backside and 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 I thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm,
0: now, that's interesting. And I think, you know, different people would take that in different ways. But the key is the is the bounce back and how you view that. And I can argue that, but, you know, both with and I'll talk a bit about bombing in public speaking a bit more in a minute in that there's huge growth potential from those experiences. And, in fact, they're actually essential as part of the journey to becoming confident and resilient and having that presence and delivering your message and, you know, all of the things that make a great stand-up comic and a great public speaker that you can't have had an experience where that that hasn't happened in order for you to grow, to be better, right? Would you
1: agree? Yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, you know, failures, it, it, there's so many amazing quotes about failure and getting up and trying again. And, uh, you know, I've always, I, it amazes me sometimes with clients and they're like, and uh, you know, oh, I'm speaking to, and it's usually, you, you might have the same thing, it's usually when people are speaking to stakeholders or else senior managers that they're working when they're doing a presentation, that the fear really creeps, seems mm-hmm. to creep in worse. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what is the worst that you think can happen in your mind? What what is it you think can happen? Um, and I had a client a month back who said, "I'll I'll get fired," and I said, "You're not going to get fired. You're not going to get fired for not saying your sentences are forgetting um a little bit, of, you know a response or something." And and actually, I just think, what's the worst that can happen? We're not, you know, we're not doing brain surgery. Nobody's actually going to die in our table. So it's perspective, you know, perspective and, and keeping it real. We're human beings. We can't mm-hmm. remember everything all the time. And it's just, it's, it's even the same when I deliver kind of in media training and Q&As. People get hugely fearful about Q&As and I'm like, you will your expertise will not be the 500 people that's in your company you won't have their expertise so just say you don't you know mm-hmm. if if this is a question that'd be better answered by the head of finance then say that
0: yeah uh, totally i think that you know the whole the whole bombing thing it's well it's actually an evolutionary protective mechanism The reason why we're so fearful of putting ourselves out there in public spaces is because actually it was a disadvantage to our survival all those years ago so that's why we don't like doing it and that's why we're fearful of doing it in front of even groups of people so within the tribes if you put your head above the parapet and you spoke out that could actually mean you could get turfed out or it could go against your survival your your likelihood of survival so that's why we have it but it's not relevant in these places today and so it's about understanding that that fear of whatever that consequence is is not as great as you are making it out to be even if you make a mistake you know I've bombed so many Times in my career, I remember, you know, my first uh, job doing this this type of thing was standing up, uh, training call center agents, and they were just awful. They were an awful crowd because they they didn't want to be there. They didn't want that job, and they didn't want to be there. I remember the first training session I delivered. I was really really young, and I just remember a girl sitting in the front row and she said something like i'll just shut up and look pretty or something like that just and i was like Ugh. and then i completely mucked up what i was going to say and i and i bombed and i sort of fed into her her belief that i wasn't very good but that was that was something that i needed because then next time i could be more prepared and i had a little retort that you know and and so these things built and that's happened many times i've made many mistakes i've stumbled um I've said something that didn't land very well. I haven't got a, a, a response from the audience that I would want to get, but Okay, well, let's just carry on. Let's see what we can do differently next time. Let's tweak. Let's change things, and also let's just be kind to ourselves because we're not robots, and actually, it's better that we aren't. You know, so I keep referring to TED. Obviously, I do a lot of TED stuff. In that, some of the best TED talks are just those really real ones where they aren't polished and they aren't professional, and they're sharing someone's journey, and they're not. You know, they do have mistakes in them. You know, they're not perfect. My TEDx talk, I made a mistake right at the beginning, but. I, I kind of joked about it and I moved on. It's okay. It's all right. People aren't going to remember that. What they will remember is the impact you've had on them as a whole of something that you said or a story that you told or a way that you made them feel. They won't be remembering you stumbling on a slide or... You know, not getting the reaction that you wanted, right?
1: That's exactly that. I couldn't agree more. People remember the way you make them feel. That that is mm-hmm. it. Um, and and then that circumstances, Helen. When I when I'm coaching people, and they say, "Oh, my boss came in an hour ago and just gave me a whole lot of content, and I'm delivering to hundred people." And so dealing with that lady who was in the audience, saying just stand there and look. There's always going to be these negative people that just can't keep it to themselves just feel the need to share and I think that as we get older maybe and, and evolve and get more experience I would just call that person it and I would I wouldn't think twice about it um about how I would handle that situation yeah because I I'm good at what I do and I demand some respect with it yeah, And and that's the essence of being a good stand-up and a good public speaker, is being able to hold your own space.
0: True. Yeah, I mean, I think back now, and I think because I was like 21 when I, that was when I, I think 20, 20 years old, something like that. Um, I'd been a coach for a few years, at virgin before. That was my first job in Brighton in a call centre. It was my first time standing up. I would respond very, very differently to that now. A um, but. <laughs> <laughs> But holding your own, standing strong in your expertise and your knowledge and why you're standing on whatever stage you're standing on, be it the virtual stage or the real-life stage or in a comedy club or wherever it might be, holding your own, rooting yourself and knowing that you're there for a reason and what you've got to say is important, Yeah. right?
1: Yeah, But belief in your ability and content is so important. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. that's why you know a lot of people say oh i don't know what to talk about well always start with what you are most passionate about and where you have that knowledge underlying that you can kind of draw on it in a q a on a panel uh in a in a 15 minute talk in a 45 minute talk it's where your expertise lies it's where your knowledge lies and where your passion lies because that's what's going to translate when you actually share it right
1: for sure and, uh, uh, you know, anything, there's a, a, a subject that there's passion about and often I work in, in, in group programs where people are, you know, we don't all love our job. We're, we're both very lucky, yeah. Helen, to, to be entrepreneurs that work for ourselves and, and I'm aware a lot of people aren't. So I, I will sometimes go into teams who don't love their job at that particular time mm. and it's about faking it till you make it. You know, it's about pretending you do. If you're going to speak on behalf of your company to 200 people at an industry event, find the passion or fake yeah. the passion.
0: Yeah. Now, a lot of people don't like that whole fake it till you make it concept. That comes from the uh, the Amy Cuddy physiology thing where, you know, if you don't feel confident, act like you're confident and you will be confident. Same applies here. I actually agree with you. You know, when it, we're talking about corporate talk where there's uh, maybe dry, data-driven, quite complex things that need to be communicated It's where can you find the passion in that? Where can you bring the humour into that? Where can you find the fun element or the angle that's going to elevate that so you don't have to be talking about data? You can be using stories instead, so you don't have to be presenting data. You can be showing visual uh, versions of what you're talking about to make that more fun for you to deliver as well as people to receive it, right? Uh,
1: Exactly. Uh, And, you know... (laughs) case studies people Mm -hmm. humans connect with humans people want to work with other people you know being able to bring it uh, you know and and i'm not saying in some 40 minute presentations about finance you're going to be able to make that really fun punchy that that that's not what i'm talking about but there is ways to make it engaging for the audience that are there and finding a, a You know, anything I go to, I ask myself, what's my objectives? What three things would I like this audience to do? Now, that could be I want to inspire them. It could be I want to entertain them. Or it could be more physical things. I would really like them to look on the website. You know, whatever it is. But I also will ask myself, what three things are the people in the audience here what would they love to get out of today? Now, that might be the companies delivering a new change and how it does something. They want the knowledge. They want to know how to do it. They want to know who to go to for the questions that they don't have answers to. You know. So anticipate what your audience want. What do they really want to get out of the talk that you're delivering? And, and mm-hmm. go in there with those answers make sure that there's time for a a reasonable amount of um, Mm Q&A and manage that and be confident managing it and be honest. If you don't know the answer, say, thanks, Chris, for your question. I really appreciate that. And it's something I want a wee bit more info on myself. So I'm going to get back to you next week once I've dug a bit deeper.
0: Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So yeah, reflecting back on that, it's I call them the golden nuggets, right? Yeah. So we begin with the end in mind. When we're, if it's a presentation, it's a keynote, it's a TED, whatever it might be, um, it's a it's a it's a stand up uh, comedy sketch. Uh, you know, I guess it's the same thing. It's beginning with the end in mind. It's like how do I want this to land? I guess particularly in public speaking or presentations, it's what do I want my audience to walk away knowing, feeling and doing differently as a result of what I got to say? Then we work backwards and we think about what those golden nuggets are and we work that into what we're saying. Now there is a something called format by bernice mccarthy which is a way of addressing an audience or answering the audience's questions in an order where when you come to the q a at the end you might actually get less q a because you've answered those questions and that is uh starts with why like simon sinek uh which is we always start with why why are why am i here why are you here What is it that I'm talking about? How am I going to do it? Or are you going to do it? And then what ifs are all of those questions you might be thinking of that I'm going to answer before I go to the questions? And so that's just a very, very simple structure. Um, And one of my courses I teach is, I call it a turbo talk because it's a really quick and punchy way of delivering a message um, that covers off all the questions and the the things that people are going to be asking in the audience.
1: Yeah, that's great. I I think that is just a really simple way to do it. And it's like often elevator pitches, I'll work with groups that sometimes go, well, we don't really pitch for anything, but the value of an elevator pitch, being able to say succinctly, in as few words as possible, why? This is why I do it. This is why I do it. This is my connection to this business. This is the connection to my role. This, you know, this is what I can do for you. You know that just even Helen, when we think about when people go networking, and we know that those events can be challenging uh, and and very dry, and often people can talk at me and I walk away and I won't have a clue and how I can work with these people and and mm. how I can recommend them to anybody mm. else. So the value of being succinct with what mm-hmm. you do and I, I do this do do it. I could help with that if you're looking for help with that or you can recommend what do you do tell me you know it's mm-hmm. short sharp to the point
0: yeah 100% 100% I have loved this exploration of public speaking versus stand up and I think we could kind of draw the conclusion there There are a lot of similarities uh, on both sides of the coin there I'd like to finish First of all, by asking, if anybody wants to find out more about you, where can they look?
1: So I'm on LinkedIn, Louise Stevenson, that's Stevenson with a V, which I'm sure you'll have, Helen. Um, And um, speakeasycoach.co.uk is our website. So speakeasycoach.co.uk. So you can have a wee look on there or connect with me on LinkedIn. Awesome. And I ask... All my guests in this podcast, the same
0: question to finish off, which is, what words have changed your life?
1: Um, well, there's a particular quote, Helen, that I love, and it is, comfort is the enemy of progress. Uh, and I, I, I think it's a brilliant quote. And actually, when I ask in, in, in group coaching, who, who can you imagine where that came from? Who did it? And everybody racks their brains. And it's actually from The Greatest Showman, the movie. Um uh-huh. uh, yeah, it's a quote in the movie, but I just the minute I heard it, I had to go and get a pen and paper um, and write it down. I just think it it, it really resonated with me. Mm. What does it mean to you? Well, I I think if you never come out of your comfort zone, you you'll never achieve achieve what you can. You know. <laughs> uh you know, just limiting yourself you know and putting a, a cap on what you can do is just it saddens me it saddens mm-hmm. me when I hear people that say the struggle to get a career promotion the struggle to speak in front of that they have debilitating you know it just saddens me just come yeah. right out. and I'm not saying it's easy obviously there's a number of different factors um involved often but it, it you know the more you commit the comfort zone, your own comfort zone, the stronger you'll get. But Ellen, you do great work around psychological and and you know the thing about neural pathways mm. is that 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 big hedge and every time you trample it down and do it once and then you do it again, that the hedging is down. You know, it's it's building these amazing pathways it's easier mm. the second time it's easier the third time you know I'm a better comedian uh, 20 years later than I was 20 gigs in it's it's experience it's doing it
0: yeah and it's it's edging out and, and expanding that comfort zone I love that a fantastic way to close this episode and
1: words that really
0: can change lives so thank you so much for coming on Louise
1: Thank you, Helen. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Words That Change Lives. Please rate, review and follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really means the world and helps me to reach more people so that we can all harness the power of our words and change lives for the better.